welcome to Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. This is about Ed McBain's 87th Precinct. Oh, sorry, dear me. <laughs> you just fell into your own train. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I'll say it 87, because that's how he says you're supposed to say it in the books. All right. Doesn't he? I think somewhere. Okay. Perhaps that's the point I'll make. I don't know. Because it always says 87th Precinct, and yet I'm sure in the um, very first you one... You say the 87. You say the 87. I'm, I'm, I'm sure like, the actual cops of the 87th Precinct would have said that it's like, if you see like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yeah. that's yeah. what they do, so that would probably make sense. But... Well, I should have done that rather than start so this I... one by just... Maybe do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe I'll have just... Maybe we've started... Well, yeah. Well, I think we're in. That's we're, it. We're up and going. That was possibly the most professional we could ever be. It's only the seventh be. take of the 87th Precinct <laughs> Mysteries series. We are slick, if nothing else. It's Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. Yes. And we're looking at Ed McBain's The Con Man, his book from 1957, fourth in the 87 Precinct series. Nice. As always, we should check in on some of the things that happened in 1957, so that um, all the other humans know the context. What have been going on? Well, I've got a, I've got a, a sports uh, question for you, Steve. Sports question. Okay. Ooh. Why is Russell Eden named in this? Does that name mean anything to you? Russell Eden. Yeah, E A D E N. It doesn't. Okay, he's a cricketer. Never heard of him. Okay. First batsman ever to be dismissed for handling the ball. Oh, right. Okay. So, I, what's handling the ball in cricket? That's where you waft it away with your hand. Yeah. You're not allowed to do that. Well, he was the first on January the 5th, 1957. Well, it's, yeah, oh, very, rare, very rare way to uh, be out. Well, there's his legacy. Oh, right. No, never heard of him, but um, claim to fame. Anyone yeah. want to guess at the FA Cup final? Uh, who, who was in Ooh, that? Wolves were strong in the 50s. I don't know. Blackpool. <laughs> I think you said that last time. Um, Probably did. Aston Villa 2, Man United 1. Oh. Ah, boring. And the, uh, the National Football Championship? The pre-Super Bowl Super Bowl. Chicago Cleveland Browns 14 Detroit Lions 59 Mm. big margin there for the Lions Mm. that's quite decisive yep so there's a few other things going on in uh, Anthony Eden resigned he did McMillan became the PM Eisenhower got in for his second term in America Mm -hmm. and the top grossing film of the year was The Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, marvellous. It's a good film. I've not seen it for a long time. And musically, basically, Elvis. Yeah. It's Elvis all the way down the charts. Elvis getting gradually more pedestrian and uh, Colonel Parkerified. Yes, he was being a, a quite a good boy. And making some movies and that being sort of less thing. rock and roll. But then, that, I mean, that was the year of All Shook Up. Ah, um, oh, fair dues. But then it was also the year of Teddy Bear, which I like the song Teddy Bear, but it's like, it is like, I don't want to be a lion, I want to be a teddy bear. It's like, that's the edge rolled off rock and roll straight away, Indeed. isn't it? It's like, they're, they're still good records, but it, it's not quite his, like, rock and roll peak, is it? Like, by that point, no, you know, you, you, if you want actual hardcore rock and roll, you've got to be looking for Gene Vincent. Yeah, I think so. That was an impression of a teddy bear. You were giving me a strange look. I know, it's because it's it's because this is uh, audio only. (laughs) Unfortunately, you couldn't see that. It was spectacular. Wonderful. Arms out of one's side. Yeah, they have trouble handling uh, handling large implements. Yeah, because, well, although we say Elvis was getting a bit pedestrian, in the UK the big hits were by Pat Boone, Guy Mitchell and Frankie Vaughan. Oh, yeah, we knew how to rock over here, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. So, that's 1957 taken care of. <laughs> that was well, all of it. That, that was it. That, yeah. that was the entire thing. Yes, so if you lived yep. through that, that's all that happened. And Well done. Don't, yeah. <laughs> 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 right, but we should get straight onto the book, because we're not only looking at the book today, but also at the first episode of the TV series that was made in the 60s, early 60s, for the um, 87th Precinct, which we've just watched. We have. Episode really have. one, the pilot episode where instead of the title of the story being The Con Man, as it is in the book, the title of the story is The Floater. 
obvious improvement. Yes, I you know I wonder when floater came to mean something less. Um... Well, the corpse wasn't really floating. No, no. it was fairly distinctly submerged. submerged. Yeah. yeah, in the in the uh, TV episode, anyway. Certainly in the book, the corpses are floating. Indeed. Um, and they do go into quite a bit of description about the, you know, the medical reasons the for science, those sorts of things. Very true. And, yeah. Right. Did we enjoy the TV program, the first episode of Eight Eight Seven Precinct? It was very good. Yes, I was very impressed. It yeah. was. I actually, yeah, found it a lot more enjoyable than I expected it to be. To be honest, um, it was kind of a bit more faithful to the source material than mm. I expected, and like quite. Uh, you know, some like really corny bits, and definitely some kind of clanky kind of um, uh, movement between sort of bits of plot, but a lot better than I expected. And like a couple of like really good bits of casting, I think too. Yeah, some of the casting was quite good. I think I think Robert Lansing, as who was cast as Corella, mm. was probably the absolute best choice they could have made at the time. He's got. Yeah, officially quite got, uh, yeah. Yeah, similar. As soon as you saw him, you, you knew uh, yeah, who, who he yeah. was playing. Uh, Kling also, I'm not sure who was playing Kling, um, but the moment you see them appear on the screen before you're told what their name is, it's like, oh, yeah. And uh, oh, Robert Culp. As, as the guest star. Yeah, who um, yes, looked familiar and uh, will feature in our uh, future... Um, podcast about the crossover with the world of Columbo for uh, <laughs> villainous in both um, Columbo and um, the series as well. Yes. And how many episodes did you say there were? 30 odd? I think there's, like? there's something like 30 episodes yes. of the 87th Precinct yeah. stuff of which only a handful are from the books and even less of that are ones that McBain himself oh. did uh, the teleplays for. I can't really find any evidence about how much it Involvement he had in the in mm. the development of it, I suspect probably not that yeah. much. Yeah. Um, it seems a scandal that there's never been a really high profile televised series. Would, well, as far as we're concerned in the UK, mm. would lend itself to a it, perfect, uh, wouldn't it? One. I think yeah. part of the problem is, of course, that Hill Street Blues came along, mm. and Ed McBain got a real bee in his bonnet about the fact that no one seemed to acknowledge that that was clearly. Stole, not stolen, developed from the, the groundwork he had done with police procedural yeah. novels. Yeah, it, like very strongly influenced by by that sort of gestalt hero and and just just working through the sort of daily um, process of, of police work. Definitely, yeah. and Hill Street Blues is absolutely extraordinary. It's a fantastic mm. series because the lieutenant in that is very similar to Corella, isn't he? Even though he's you know he technically yeah. would be a superior, but. In terms of the characters, they're like immensely comparable. Yeah, it's it's got a bigger squad, and there's a lot more going on. And obviously, in terms of comparing it to like a 1960s TV series mm. of of the 87th, a bit more with the uniform, isn't there in Hill Street? <laughs> yeah, yeah, rather than the detective division, definitely. Yeah, it covers well. everything. But it is so clearly influenced by the 87th precinct um, police procedural type thing, and it's no surprise that Ed McBain was a little put out that he didn't really get the acknowledgement. Mm. I think. The thing with Hill Street Blues being such a success meant that no one was going to come back to the 87th Precinct books mm. and say, well, let's make these again yeah, or, or, or properly. Yeah. And I think there's also the issue that if you're making fantastic stories like Cop Hater, which is from 1956, and you're trying to make it in 1986, let's say, yeah. you've got all the technological problems that solve all the story elements. Absolutely, yeah. So police radios, computers, you know, all these... Databases, uh, mobile uh, police cars with communications, radio mm. cars, or whatever they were called at whatever time. And I think the thing is, again, now if they were going to try and make one now, which I really wish they would, mm. you have the same problem. So yeah. do you set it as a period piece? I think you would have to. Yeah, I think you would. I think you'd have to. And why be, not? Yeah, that would be excellent. Half, half actually. the fun of it. Yeah. But I think one thing that watching the um, was reading the books when you reading the books, they always seem. Bizarrely contemporary to like now, we, I, you don't read it or I don't and think, crikey, this is like 50 years ago, or whatever. But when you see it on the telly, it kind of like hammers home how <laughs> yeah. old it is, uh, and it lot, seems old fashioned when you watch it, mm. but when you read it, it doesn't read old fashioned, a lot which of the is books quite have strange. Aged pretty well, there's, mm, there's a lot of bits yeah. that flag up uh, how old it was, but most of the time, 
Um, it doesn't make any difference whether you're reading one from the 50s or one no, from, it doesn't. from the 90s. Or... And they don't have a... Yeah, they don't you know, come across as old-fashioned, mm. I don't think. No, I don't think they do. I mean, there's obviously things that don't happen in some books that would happen naturally in mm. the course of police work yeah. 10 years hence, 20 years mm. hence from when the story's told. But I think that his handle of the character, handling of the characters is such that mm. you are so involved with the characters and the way they act. And, and a lot of what his books are about are the motivating factors for human beings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's fairly universal to any Absolutely, time, really. Yeah. One of those, of course, that wasn't addressed in the TV episode, and we perhaps mention that later, but is that this novel, The Con Man, is the first one in which Detective Arthur Brown appears. Mm-hmm. And he's a character who's in it for quite a long time yep. after this. And he is also the notable black detective yep. in this. So we've had the female detective in a couple of books before, and we have a first black detective in this one. Notably not in the cast of the TV episode. No. Yeah, that, that was peculiar. But, um, yeah, he, he's, he's pretty... Cool author, Brian, and I enjoy his his subplot that uh, is a, a major sort of linchpin of this novel. I, I think it's a good one. Yeah, it's always a, a risky thing if you introduce a character who has particular traits that could potentially just become a cipher for talking about those things, because you then reduce the character down to the issue, and obviously the the issues that stem from having a black cop in nineteen fifties police in a big city in America are are significant. Yeah. But I think the good thing with characters like Arthur Brown is that they, they stay part of the team and they grow and they you know, or, or we grow with them and we see how they deal with, with this stuff as human beings rather than just simply a a device to sort of say racism exists. Yeah, yeah. Simply mm. and purely that I wouldn't uh, claim to have much authority to speak on these matters, but I think there's a very interesting part of the book which is what I've written down in my little notes as the meditation on race and prejudice, which is when Arthur Brown goes to pick up a suspect from a hotel somewhere. Mm. And the first thing, you know, he's incognito because he's a detective. And the first thing that happens is that the guy on reception basically says, we don't let Negroes stay here in rather more strong language. Yeah, he's not quite so delicate about it. And it's amazing how Arthur Brown remains cool but also deals with it as well. It's a really good sequence, I it's think. It's great, yeah. And it's it's even refers to this specific bit of legislation that, or the law, I suppose it would be, that deals with why that can't be the case. And it's also, I mean, I don't know, is it clever or not that he's called him Arthur Brown mm. to give him the excuse to say that the circumstances of his of his background of of created the scenario where he's, he's had to live as a black man with the surname Brown in those in that society. Yeah. It's interesting, anyway. But he's a good character, and it's great that he's in the squad, yeah. because in some future books, I think he's got a lot more to do. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he's one of the main um, yeah, characters. Certainly a good yeah. chunk of the later books as well. And he is another link to Columbo. So, again, he's Who is? Arthur Brown. Is he indeed? He isn't. And I just don't know whether I want to reveal that now. Because oh, I think save the. Uh, yeah, maybe save he's got a one. very real and significant link to Columbo. Well, who would have thought that? Well, <laughs> when we get to the novel Jigsaw as well, that's one where he's got a lot to do. Oh, cool. So, missing from the TV series as well is the subplot about different types of cons mm. going on. And I like stories with, with like grifts and cons and things in them. Me too, very much. That's one of the things that really appealed to me about this novel. Um, it's probably the first novel I've, I've read that like delved into that world, and then after that, I discovered things like uh, The Grifters by Jim Thompson oh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, very good book. Uh, Trick Baby by um, Iceberg Slim, which is tremendous. Yeah, um, like strongly recommended. Um, Iceberg Slim. Now that's a name you could set your watch by. Absolutely, yeah. Like great um, sort of. I think he was like a a real life sort of pimp turned um, novelist, and like really influential on on like a lot of like early gangster rap. But um, like Trick Baby is like maybe his like second or third novel, and it's just detailed like in quite fine detail like the life of uh, a kind of uh, short con kind of uh, hustler. And what um, sort of... Uh, when was that written? Uh, I'm trying to think when that one is. Roughly. That's, uh, 
60s, I think. Okay. I, I, I'll lose track. I, I, the, the most recent one I read was Pimp, which I think is his first novel, which isn't really a novel. It's more or less a slightly glorified autobiography. Yeah. Uh, written just after he got out of prison. Um, and then he, he proceeded to, to write a bunch of other novels based largely on things that he's encountered in his real life. But... Um, that sounds interesting. That, yeah, well, well worth checking out. Iceberg I'll, I'll Slim. Definitely check out Iceberg Slim. I suspect that wasn't the name he was given at birth. Oh, I, I imagine it was. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what mother in the, in the 30s wouldn't have named her son Iceberg? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it, 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 that first novel, uh, Pim, does detail um, his, his acquisition of the nickname Iceberg. Ah, how he came by the... Uh... There's no no one's known as blood or young blood earlier. <laughs> that must have been confusing. <laughs> it must have been, yeah. But uh, yeah, like I think um, confidence tricks are, are like really fertile ground for um, crime novels, and it's it's it makes it a really interesting uh, read. Yeah, and that's the good thing is this: they've got the small and the big in this one, haven't they? So Absolutely, they've got the yeah. major crime, which is a a huge con and a very very destructive and dangerous one. Mm. But he actually opens the book with a, a sort of snappy thing about if you're going to be a criminal, well, why not be a con man? Yeah. You know, and then starts out with um, some poor girl who's who's conned out of it's only five dollars mm. by a, a fake preacher mm. who's got one of the, I think, like a, I assume he's supposed to be one of those trick wallets where he mm. puts or, or no, he puts the en- puts it in an envelope, doesn't he, and sticks it in his pocket and gets a fake one out to give it back to her and yeah. she finds it's empty. But that triggers Arthur Brown on this. I've got to find this guy, and they also run a con, like a, um, a fake betting con. So it turns out there's two of them, and it's just great to see the mechanism because obviously, yeah, I, it's it's really cool how they pick out a mark and how they how they play him, and how they ultimately fall into the trap laid by the police. Yes, which is good because. There's actually there's one thing that they couldn't have done on TV that this book does very well is that when Arthur Brown goes to trap them, we don't know it's Arthur mm-hmm. Brown in the in the actual he in just the book described as the young man, isn't he? Yeah. So we can assume that uh, that we're just going to get another story about them conning someone, another another thing, and then at the end of the chapter, it's Arthur Brown. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and he couldn't have done that on TV. Well, not. Very easily, anyway. It'd have taken some creative um, camera work. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's good. So, I, so there's a sort of almost like the light-hearted crime, mm. which is those cons <laughs> about pearls and and betting and five dollars. And then there's the big con, which is gives McBain the chance to do what I think he starts to do in this book more than he does in the first mm. three. Now he's sort of found his feet with this, or maybe he feels confident now mm. he's been commissioned again to write the next three. I believe yeah. it was like another block of three he was commissioned to oh, write. Right. And suddenly the narrator's voice in this becomes so much more what we get used to in the later it ones. Definitely, is really settled in. It, like, uh, if, it, even if it was just another three, it feels like he's settling in for the long haul, doesn't it, somehow? Yeah. Uh, so you, you, that, that omniscient um, narrator really kind of feels like he's able to just dig his heels in and say whatever the hell he wants at that point. Yeah, and chapter three, so you're only, you know, 20-odd pages into this thing. Chapter three has, has like, two whole pages of him just musing on the notion of cons <laughs> and how it's woven into our everyday lives through <laughs> advertising. So he talks about... I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and say this in one go. Given that I couldn't get the name of the podcast out yeah. and the title of the series of the book, this would be good. He has a quote, he says, Look around you, friends, and see the confidence men. I have in my hand right here, ladies and gentlemen, a bar of so soap. This is the only soap on the market which contains neosenfrotineticin, which we call Neo Number no. 7. Neo Number no. 7 puts an invisible film of visible filmy acetonoids on the epidermal glottiferum. <laughs> and goes on from there into politics. He goes on to deals and guarantees, love. Cars that have been clocked. Uh, and then a, a big thing about um, publishers. Yeah, of course. So he's having a go at publishers already. And then about the sort of horrible people you meet at parties and um, alcohol. 
He'd only be about 30 writing that as well, yeah. wouldn't he? <laughs> then, if that. Already a very cynical young man. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, the, that, that kind of cynical, humorous voice that, that hovers throughout all these stories is, is like properly in full force in this one, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it just keeps coming in and out as well. And where it seems funny is that it makes the actual crime, the bad, big crime of the book, seem even more dramatic because mm. suddenly it's like we've been treating it all like a bit of a... Like, oh, that's just the way things are. Aren't we aware of all of this sort of stuff? Yeah. And then suddenly, it's bad. Ooh, it's bad. <laughs> There's another character in this who was introduced for the first time, and that is the assistant medical examiner, Paul Blaney. Oh, Ooh, yeah. yeah, he's fun. And yeah, I like the fact that Corella just does not like him. And it's funny because Corella's sort of like, he's just the nice guy, isn't he? He's quite an easygoing fella, so for him to not like someone is quite a, a, a flag, really. Yeah. Is he um, the guy with a twin brother? Yeah, so later on we find out he has a twin brother. And I, I can't remember if it's... You've got the same name or something? No, it's something mad. I think it? it's this Paul and Carl, I think. All oh, right. But oh, I think... twin brothers with the same name. <laughs> totally. That'll be fun. <laughs> I yeah, I can't be asked to find out which one's which. Let's just call them the same thing. Yeah, they're going to call them in for tea at the same time. They're going to have bath time at the same time. Yeah, that's. He's, he's an interesting character because he's sort of he's a grump and he complains, but Corella mm. plays him. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, he knows how to flatter him to get results, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, which is great. We'll have to see in later books. I can't remember if when. Carl Blaney, who is also an assistant ME in the same <laughs> in yeah. the same area. You just wonder whether it was he a mistake got, on uh, yeah that he corrected later and just made them into twin brothers. Yeah, I just thought, yeah, actually, let's just roll with that. Like how in in, in Marvel Comics, um, Bruce Banner's official name is Robert Bruce Banner because uh, Stanley forgot what he'd called him <laughs> for a couple of issues and changed his name to Bob for a bit and then changed <laughs> it back again. <laughs> So, this yeah, is, it might be something like that. This is the pre-internet era. If you did that now, you'd immediately be subject to a torrent yeah. of abuse about, you did this wrong in this episode, and you did this and that and the other. <laughs> and I'm directly tweeting you to say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't get away with it now. But uh, we're making an assumption there that might not be the case. Well, absolutely. He meant it all along. I'm and sure he did. But I think Mum was a else professional... About- the, uh, we've talked in the past about the, uh, you know, how, how prominent Steve Carella was and his McBain's kind of theory of having the squad as the like gestalt or, heroes, yeah, he says, or yeah. like equal footings. But no sooner is he starting, you know, the, the the this fourth book for the remainder of the series, that's out the window that concept, isn't it? Yeah, um, almost as soon as he's kind of. I don't know, because we talked about last time about him killing off uh, Corella and obviously the um, conversations he's had with his uh, pu- publisher. So, yeah. whether you know, whether he's had a bit of a rethink on that and decided, well, you know what, I think we do need a focal point here yeah. and a, a character to run with more than others. But I think what once he settles in with this, like, Corella tends to take the lead. There's still going to be the odd book where he's going to take a back seat, but... Not so many of them, though, are there, Not really? so many of them, no. no. From this point on, you, you can generally assume that Corella will, will probably be heading up most of the kind of main focus of the book, and the other characters are definitely going to be there, and they'll be playing an important part, but it's mainly going to be Steve Corella who's going to be the, the focal point. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to give the, the reader a linchpin yeah. in which to get into the story. Absolutely, yeah, I get that. And yeah, you couldn't do it from top down, really. You couldn't have it being like Lieutenant Burns mm. and have him in every book giving out the crimes, like assignments, mm. giving out the crimes. What a silly, <laughs> silly way of saying that. I've got some crimes, Steve. <laughs> got a bag of crimes here. Who wants a crime? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put your hand in, pick one out, see what you get. We've got a gunman crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,. There's a lot of there's a lot of humour in this book actually. I've I've made some notes mm. on page 103 of my book mm. is where it appears that Claire Townsend, Bert Klings, um, I don't think they're no, it's, they are fiance. I think they are by this point, aren't they? Yeah, they are fiance. They <laughs> are, I know what you mean. I know. Just, 
the words not do the work. They're tonight. engaged. They are engaged by this point. But she's in there and they're trying to sort out um, going on holiday and it clashes with her final exams. Uh. But she's... <laughs> where we'd say, well, that really takes the biscuit or something like that. Yeah. She uses the phrase, well, this positively wins the fur-lined bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've never heard anywhere else. Maybe if we've got any American listeners, they, it might be, you know, is this a usual phrase? I'd like to imagine that in 1957, everyone was saying that. The fur-lined bathtub. That's great, that. That's so good. I think she says something else as well. Oh, it takes the brass bologna. <laughs> 10th of June absolutely takes the brass bologna. Bologna? I don't, how do you say that? That sounds about right bologna. to me. Yeah. If I were a midget, I could probably get a job stuffing Vienna sausages. <laughs> yeah, they're having a great time. They've got some good banter, haven't they? They have... They're made for each other, and their love, their, their love will last forever and ever. I know, oh, it's, it's eternal. It's eternal. <laughs> mm. Mm. But the funny thing is, in that little sequence, is they're just getting really drunk while they go through. Yep, it's, it's like, great. We've got a problem. How are we going to solve it? Let's just get really drunk on whiskey, really just quickly. Get totally hammered, and it'll all be fine. And of course, it is. And the little clever trick of that is that the way that they solve the problem is by forging a note from Claire's dad. <laughs> so. Kling himself becomes a bit of a con man mm. in order to get what he needs. Indeed. Or the pair of them become... And that's, again, that's the point of the book. It's woven through it as well. Yep. Welcome to Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. See, I can say it right if I concentrate. This is part two of episode four, which looks at the fourth book in the 87th Precinct series, The Con Man, from 1957. We were looking at that and also the first episode of the 87th Precinct TV series, which was called The Floater, but was based on this book. If you want to watch that, it's one of the two episodes that are available on YouTube. Just search for 87th Precinct, and there's the episode The Floater and one called The Pigeon with Peter Falk in it. Another Columbo connection. Also, if you are so inclined, a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud or a share on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts would be very much appreciated. Help us reach a few more people, get the message out. Also, March is the month of hashtag tripod, urging people to encourage others to listen to podcasts by perhaps showing them how to do it on the phone or passing on uh, information about something that they really like. My recommendations are always going to be Spontaneous Nation, Comedy Bang Bang, um, with special guest Lauren Lapkus, all brilliant improv comedy podcasts. And uh, a share for us would be very nice as well. So we'll return now to where we left off last week as we discuss The Con Man. So I'd like to talk about what is a very good scene in the episode we've just watched and is mm. also a great scene in this book but I don't think makes real sense mm. which is when Steve and Teddy go for a bite to eat in an Italian restaurant after they've been out doing some stuff and while Steve's at the phone checking in with the squad a drunkard comes over and tries to hit on Teddy now it was very dramatic in the TV well, episode it was, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Lots of flying arms yeah. Flying, flying arms. Pretty much destroyed the entire restaurant, actually. Uh, much to the complete uh, passivity <laughs> of the uh, restaurant owner. It Presumably he couldn't pay him to have any lines. Yeah, he wasn't that fussed, was he? he was just, ah, yeah. yeah, everybody kind of moved out of the way, and then as soon as it finished, like, old men sat yeah. back down again. As long as he hadn't <laughs> disturbed their plates of spaghetti yeah. and meatballs. But it's, an, it's quite good on the... I, yeah, I was worried that they were going to sort of play it down a bit. Mm. In fact, I find it bizarre that they included it in the episode at all, really. It wasn't strictly necessary, really, was it? Unless but, because um, it's the first episode, they're trying to stamp out mm. Corella as being like, he will do what needs to be done. He's, okay. a, he's mm. Even though he's a cop, he's not going to take any rubbish from anyone. Yeah. He's a passionate man and he, he cares for his wife and he, he's not just going to do things by the book. He's going to... He's going to, yeah, go yeah. as far as he can go. Absolutely. But not break the law. Although I think it was technically assault. <laughs> but he sort of makes up for that by his own little con, is he hands him over to the patrolman mm. and and says, just book him on being drunk, not coming at me with a broken bottle. That's it, yeah. So it's a little bit of, of giving the, the charges, yep. 
I think it's, it's interesting because the way it's described in the book as well is, is all about how he becomes like a machine, a fighting mm. machine. <laughs> it's like he's, and they did they actually portray that quite well on screen. I, I thought think so, yeah. he, suddenly, he suddenly became quite still, ready for the attack, and you knew what was well, going on. Unfortunately, Dave wasn't aware that uh, he was facing a machine. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah, say he doesn't that. do much to defuse the situation, he just punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. What's the he trouble? He defuses it fairly quickly. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been flicking through my book and I can't actually find it. But uh... About page 87 in my edition. All right. Probably in my 87, you say? Mm. I like Dave's approach to Teddy. Is like, look, what do you have to be such a cold tomato for, huh? <laughs> well, uh, what woman would not be won over by that? Well, honestly. A deaf woman, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a weird thing. It's cold like tomato. Dave, the drunk who comes and hits on Teddy... He's he's baiting Steve Carella, mm. and he's like, when he hits him, he's like, I was hoping you'd do that because he's spoiling mm. for a fight. And they very cleverly cast him in the in the episode as being a bigger guy than Carella. Mm. Yeah. So he was he had a good sort of three or four inches on him, and he was a bit bulkier as well. So it's like, oh, maybe it's just it was just used as a way to establish our hero in the mm. in the TV edition. So I like I like that. Yeah. Well, if that was the first. First, you said that was the first, first one. Episode, yeah, yeah, so obviously you're doing a, um, yeah, setting out the character quite early in terms of what he will uh, put up with and mm. not. And indeed, we lose all the uh, sub story about Bert Kling and Claire, but they introduce their own one about having Bert always on the phone to Claire. Yeah. So he's sort of all very lovey dovey. All oh, yeah. what happened to my voice then? Oh, all very lovey dovey all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, and he's always badgering everyone for advice, isn't he, in the books about yeah. what he should <laughs> yeah. do and shouldn't do. And Oh, bless him. We have a little hint about Roger Haviland's background. So whereas in the books we're told about how his arm was broken by a punk as a kid, which made him the nasty man that he is mm. now in the TV episode, it's about someone pulled a knife on him once, yep. so he says that. And uh, Maya Maya is... is doesn't get the full explanation of his name. They just give him the sort of like he's the character with that droll humour. Yeah, sort of... absolutely. So that came across like pretty well. Still, he yes. doesn't have the, uh, the, the the famous bald head. Yeah, no. sadly, the but, pool uh, pool ball. But uh, yeah, it yeah, doesn't look quite like a cue ball. But uh, ball, I, I yeah. think his, his signature wit came across quite well. Actually, and uh, the actor who good. played him, Norman Fell, has got a fantastic face, sort of. Mm. Sort of hangdog in a way, but, mm. but it's kind of very much like you'd expect the character to, to uh, look. Actually, yeah. Yeah, I'm just having a look down his Good. list on. Uh, oh, he was in at least one episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Excellent. I hope he uh, did some hilarious dancing. Um, <laughs> fairly sure he will have. He did a couple of Murder She Wrote. Yeah, Robert Culp was in Murder She Wrote as well. I bet everyone, every actor in America is in Yeah, it's like a sort of, like a sort of detective and police-based rep company that just goes around doing all these different things. Pretty much. I just keep looking down this. Yeah, there's all sorts of things you'd recognise. I think a lot of these actors would have been in so much stuff. Mm. Starsky and Hutch. Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold. I don't know what that is. Sounds Sounds exciting. Bloody great. Sounds a bit like... Oh, he's in Catch-22. Oh, I've never seen the film of that. I've never seen the film of that either. Confession. I've also never finished the book of that yet. That's good. Yeah. It's, 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 it's worth persevering with. Yeah, I know. I need, I need to dig it out and have a go again. Oh, I, he's in I, it's, 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 it. Doesn't, we'll come back to Catch 22. <laughs> Norman Fell is in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, oh, which is one of, my, movie. one of my favourite stupid chase movies. It's great. It's got everyone in it, that. Anyway, sorry. You were saying about uh, Catch-22? Nothing important. Nothing important. <laughs> this isn't the Catch-22 podcast. It isn't, no. <laughs> so, anyway, adapting 8-7 Precinct for the TV. From that episode, it seems like they've sort of done some stuff oh. well. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned about, you know, this is only a few years after the original stories were written. Yeah. And they wrote new stories for that set of characters in that scenario to suit the production of that. Indeed. Yeah. Oh... We've had this discussion before, I think, probably in a pub at some point, where I've sort of said about when would you set it now? If you had to set it as a period piece, when could you set it then that didn't have too much technological advance that you wiped out loads of the stories instantly, 
but was also at a position where it had enough technological advance that he didn't wipe out a load of stories that came afterwards. See, if I was doing it as a period piece, I think it'd probably have to be a 70s one. I'd, I'd well do like an 80s one. You reckon? 1983, I think I'd set it. So you're going for that classic um, ice sort yeah, of era. That, that's exactly what, what, what I was thinking. Miami Vice kind of era. <sighs> It'd be yeah. low, it'd be yeah, low, think about the costumes. It'd be loads better than that, though. Oh, yeah, but everyone would have daft haircuts, obviously. But, Lovely white um, suit jackets. Three sizes I, I, too big. I, I think the 80s, you, you could fit like quite a lot of the early stories into that. and it, but Technology wouldn't have advanced so much that it would ruin yeah, too much. Yeah, the mobile stuff. phone defeats a hell of a lot of plots, doesn't it? Yeah. Reading like um, espionage novels, like, you know... Mm. The, Mobile phone and the internet just kills about ninety nine percent of the plots. Yeah, if you have, so them you have in the, to make them in, in, in the time they were set. You know, to, yeah. As soon as you make it not necessary to put little notes in dry stone mm. walls that people pick up is kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> half the yeah. fun of it. Because so. actually, when it, we've both watched Deutschland eighty three, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. That year eighty three, and that's got enough of old school spying and espionage, yes. which is like uh, like dead letter drops and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Set if that was in the current day, you'd be able to find out in thirty seconds mm-hmm. whether something was a true or not true. Whereas the whole paranoia, yeah, um, you haven't ever physically moved the information it, over exactly, over a, yeah. a, a physical and political border. I think, the, yeah, I think the eighties w- would work certainly. Yeah, I think I mean, the late sixties, early seventies think would be good because obviously um, a lot of, um, I think there's a bit more uh, kind of. Paranoia from you know the Nixon era and a bit of yeah, I mean conspiracy theory kind of I think any of these mood around like, so that would help foster the right they, kind of they atmosphere. Did like a, a thing like Shane Meadows did with This Is England, where they just did like a mini series of like different eras, yeah, and came back to it a different. Uh, obviously, and with I know, the same characters. I know the characters didn't age realistically in the book, so that could be a bit tricky. But if you did it sort of something from like the late 50s through the early 80s you could probably keep some of the same characters and I know there's a certain amount of change over in the characters in the books anyway yes that, you that might would have probably to, if you did something bold like that that would probably wouldn't upset a lot of fans but probably be quite good would would be interesting whether an audience would, would awesome. uh, whether uh, yeah an audience would kind of accept that I suppose well, well in the recent Sherlock you know Sherlock they did obviously that's contemporary, but they, they have done an episode where. Well, they did talking the, about you know so the dream sequency thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, similar-ish kind of concept. I think it's more of a thing that happens now because certainly, like this is England, like you say, and also Fargo, the TV series of Fargo, is doing that as well, well the, jumping between well, between decades. Well, this you'd be talking about the same cast, wouldn't you? So whether whether an audience would buy into that because they'd be thinking, well, a fortnight ago. Yeah. We're watching this in the sixties, and they're all the same age. What's that all about? So it would be whether they would buy into that. in the in the books because they're all so close together, yeah. written wise. You don't really notice it. This is why I'm not commissioning shows for HBO. No. Um, <laughs> well, you'll you never know. get the job with that attitude. <laughs> but um, damn it, yeah. But saying that, uh, I don't know if have you seen the uh, like the first series of True Detective. That's, no, I've not seen that. That's very good. And that's set in the nineties, and even I think it's the nineties, and even oh. that doesn't let kind of that's not defeated by mobile phones. No, no, it you know, be. they probably have no. pages or whatnot. Uh-huh. So yeah, you, know, you can still. I would certainly take still, some uh, yeah. some clever script oh. writing uh, to do it. Yeah. But I think it'd be good. In fact, I believe it was possibly Steve Bashimi's production company acquired the rights to do an 87th Precinct Ooh. series in the late 90s or the early 2000s, and oh, nothing wow. came of it. Wow. So I wonder if the rights are currently owned by someone, someone's mm. got an option on it. But I, I just don't see how it would fit into the sort of the landscape of things at the moment. Because... In my mind, what I would ideally want is it to be like the bill, you know, to have it on every week, have an episode mm. on, like it would have been when it was the 87th Precinct series in the 60s. Course, yeah. But that's just, I don't think they make things like that anymore. No. Maybe not so much, no. But someone could do a great one. As you say, it would need to be a period piece, but they could set it like in any decade, and I think it would be great. Yeah. 
to any of our American listeners or listeners from abroad who have never seen the bill, then... <laughs> oh, you've missed out. <laughs> where, you, where you had Hill Street Blues, we had bill, a yeah. housing estate with some troubles. Sun Hill. Yeah, it's, it's had um, Burnside, though, which was always my favourite character. Yeah. He was a really... Uh, well, you, you, he was always suggested whether he was like a crooked cop in the early uh-huh. series, but he wasn't. He was part of a, a um, he was part of an operation to flush out like bent coppers. But it was always a suggestion that he was bent as well. And he had his own <laughs> spin-off series called Burnside. He did. I mean, I think he, I think he was uh, played by Christopher Ellison. That sounds Chris Ellison. That sounds Chris like right. Ellison, yeah, who him. I think was uh, was he in was he in uh, Celebrity Big Brother? Maybe <laughs> as well. He, was he? Blimey, that's um, not on my uh, viewing schedule. Uh, no, not mine. But uh, yeah, well, there were just yeah. There he is. We'll have to flag him up on there the uh, on the Twitter feed. He's a, but, the, um, got a great face for cop shows. The uh, high point of. Uh, British, uh, well, it does the same TV thing as Hill Street Blues in the sense that it has, it has uniform and detectives. Mm. Yeah. But it was played much more like a soap opera. There is the tricorn yeah. hat. That's a very nice tricorn hat. Is that in front <laughs> of the dartboard there as well? Um, it's an eye. Oh, it's an eye. Oh, is, is that it? the Big Brother eye? I think eye so, thing, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I preferred it was a dartboard. But he also Me played too. a baddie in a children's TV series. That The theme tune was uh, that Kate Bush song. Running up that hill, really? Really? This is what's that? I can't remember what on earth was it called. <laughs> um, was it on ITV? I can't. I, I can't honestly. Do you remember. know, you haven't got the information. No, no. And it would probably take too long for me to Google it whilst on air. <laughs> well, but yeah. yes, we'll whatever that we'll, was called. We'll find yeah. out. We'll find out, and then we'll do a podcast about that. We'll perhaps a, if, yeah, perhaps the, if we start a, a bill podcast, yeah. <laughs> every single episode of the bill. <laughs> when did it stop? Not long ago, was it? The bill. Yeah. The bill would have started about eighty three, two, something eighty four, maybe, and finished about two thousand and probably is about ten years ago. I would say. Yeah. Oh, so I don't think it would have lasted beyond twenty ten. They were, if you remember, they were always moving it around in the schedules because yeah. for years it was half an hour, and then it was an hour, and then it was forty five minutes. They were messing and, around with it a bit. Um, because it used to work like a soap, it was a regular mm. thing in a regular yeah. slot. But it also had the people at the end on the credits walking in a really strange manner. Up they, the they, they, they did walk in a strange manner, but like, they did have that boss theme tune. Did, the theme tune's called in the weird time signature, and it's called Overkill. That's ah, the official name of the of the theme. Final tune, episode, thirty first of August, twenty ten. Oh, well so, done. There we go. Copyright, Johnny. Um, Sorry. Can I show you a picture? If, we'll if, if we'll my put fr- this online as if well. My uh, friend who I worked with at Thameside, who was a, he, he loved the bill, and um, uh, we used to chat. But uh, he was quite obsessed with Reg Hollis. Oh, Reg Hollis was brilliant. Um, which was a bit of a comedy. But can I really shock you to show you what the actor Jeff Stewart looks like now? Well, it, he looks like Alan Moore. He <laughs> looks as though he has gone totally... He looks like a cross between Alan Moore and Bob Ross. Um, the painting guy. Yeah, that's very... a, a tremendous combination. <laughs> He's done well. Yeah. He's a very... Um, He's got some great shades, if I can uh, find. He was a brilliant character. He was, he was very a lot of people's favourite character in the bill. Now he looks like a cross between Bob Ross and uh, uh, that Jarvis director, Cocker. Or the film director. Um, he's got the giant glasses that make him look like he's had an owl's eyes transplanted into his head. Looks like he's drank too much LucasAid. Yes. Like, yeah, is like sort of... If, Bob Ross and, and Tim Burton. Tim Burton, were, were that's what I meant. Somehow. Yeah. Oh, we, excellent. We kind of gone off into different territory <laughs> we here. We have, rather. Well, okay. not to worry. But like Hill Street Blues dealt equally with uniform yeah. and detective Indeed. squad. So yeah. you had the uh, the Reg Hollises uh, and the guy who always goes to the darts every year, Tony <laughs> Stamp. Uh, and then you've also got Burnside and Roach on the detective there was always the classic uh, uniform, non-uniform angst. Yep. Yeah, I think well, yeah, it's it's if... which you don't really get in this. Although you'd get it with Burns uh, hitting the um, uh, f- is it 
Captain Flick. Frick. Frick, yeah. Um, yeah, so in the 87th precinct, we don't yeah. see much about uniform. We have a few patrolmen who crop yeah. up now and again. Obviously, Kling comes straight from being a patrolman, so they couldn't have used him as a character if he didn't become part of the detective mm. team. It wouldn't have made sense yeah. for him just to keep being one of the many patrolmen there would have been. Um, but well, you yeah, get, you, you get, get it through Burns and he's... Yeah. This is actually the first book that uh, Lieutenant Burns isn't in. Mm. He doesn't... And actually, in the episode on TV... He was in it very briefly. Uh, yeah, we, we Although assume they, it's him. Yeah. They spell his office for... Um, yeah. To give them out his bag of crimes. Yeah. And they spell his name differently in the TV series. Mm. B-U-R-N-S. Rather than B-Y-R-N-E-S. For no good reason, I imagine, really. Scans better, maybe. Okay, so, yes, we've gone rather off topic there a little bit about the bill, but still, you know... So, marks out of ten for the bill. Well, I would definitely say... Read your list deserves ten out of ten. Well, I think it's 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 an interesting point in the series anyway. We've, with the fourth book in of fifty four books or whatever mm. it is, where he's finished his commission of the first three, he's getting into the next three. His voice is starting to come through more strongly. Definitely, it's getting more. I mean, the next few books are really really good ones that are, I think, just proper addictive police procedural crime books that you you really can just. You just eat them up when you start reading them. And it's it's just a great continuation. He's really set himself mm. everything he needs to go forward from this point. And yeah. it's, it's the reason for the success of the thing, isn't it? Mm. It yeah. is. I think look, this is the first one where you, you see him, although like all the other books in the series, you can read it like on its own and it's, it works perfectly as a standalone novel. It's the first one where you really see like him working in stuff that isn't essential to the plot of that particular book, but is ongoing kind of plot stuff, like just the relationship between uh, Bert and Claire. Uh, yeah, the, the, you know. That yeah, does, if you were reading it really, as a standalone, you'd be like, "Yeah, oh, what's the it doesn't really, that, really need to be yeah. there yeah. For, for for that novel." But if you've been reading the series, it's nice to have that there, and it, that that seems to to me to be him kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, it's for long haul, so yeah, I'm just going to like yeah, work some of these bits in and and just just let people who are reading the series know what's going on with these characters. And that's a good point, that because um, yeah, it's clearly like. Yeah, he knows there's plenty more to come. And yeah, she kind of seems like he's kind of really settled in. Like it, yeah. it feels like most of the elements that you expect from these novels are properly in oh, place yeah. by this point. And, and and he's breathing a bit more. You feel he's sort of is 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 relaxing in as as a, as an author into the series. Mm, definitely, like his his own like narrative voice is really strong. Um, it's a great plot. Um, it, 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 it works as a novel on its own. It also works really well as part of a series, and it, it kind of feels like it's properly arrived, uh, and that's great. Okay, then we better come up with a, a score for it, and I will just fire up Kenneth, the uh, the calculating <laughs> machine. I have um, actually made inquiries to check that we're allowed to use Kenneth, the computer that's normally used for calculating the scores on our on our beer run. But um, I've yet to hear back from the committee, so I'll, I'll talk about that later when we've got <laughs> more information. Scoring then, now we're clear on what we had on the other ones. There was a recording break there for the uh, uninitiated. The uninitiated? I don't know. Who would the uninitiated <laughs> be? There's probably going to be another one now after this. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't use this yeah, bit. <laughs> so scores then. Yes, um, would, I'll go first. Go on then. This time, because okay. I normally leave myself to last to uh, hedge my bets. <laughs> but I'm. It is a brilliant story, and I, I love the way it plays out. Again, the thing is always about knowing how much more there is to come. Mm. Uh, so I'm going for an eighty-two. 82. On this one, eighty-two. I think. I think that's, that's like that's proper solid. That's. Proper yeah. solid. It's mm. not got the absolute explosiveness of some of them, mm. but it's like it's just it's a really good continuation. It's like you know you're on a on this road and you want to stay on it with these ones. So eighty two from mm. me, and I'll go to Steve-O next. Okay. Well, yes, I think it's definitely an upper quartile. Uh, I've not read it for a little while, but um, yeah, during this chat, uh, yeah, a lot of it came back, and I, I do remember enjoying it. Um, 
And I think I possibly enjoyed it more than... The first three are always a little different to the rest of the series, not fully formed, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I think I will go 80. I think uh, I would go 80. An 80 from Stephen. Mr Morgan Brown? Okay, well, um, I'm a big fan of this book. Um, the, the moment Be The bold. moment I started reading it again... I was like overjoyed because it just came back to me how much I enjoyed it the first time I read it like many years ago. Um, I think it's it captures everything that I really enjoy about the early books in the series. Um, Brace yourselves here. No, no, it sounds like he's building up to something big. <laughs> Um, no, it, 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 it's great. It's, it's, got, like, it's got, got all the characteristic kind of things in there. It's got the really strong narrative voice. It's got it T- Teddy Carella in a really strong role. She's yes, great. Much so. We haven't really talked um, about her in this one, but uh, um, and um, I, I, I'm going to go in. I'm going to weigh in with a strong 88 police badges. Mm. 88, oh, excellent. Okay, well, okay let's see what uh, Kenneth makes of those numbers, and it comes out with. 83. Well, 83, that's, that's pretty solid. There. Very respectable. So 83 police badges out of 100 for Ed McBain's The Con Man from 1957. It's a cracker. So with that, we will finish off the main part of the podcast and maybe we'll have a little look at the book covers and uh, perhaps mention Teddy Corella in the little bonus bit afterwards. Cool. But from now... Uh, from now? But from now and from us. <laughs> from now... <laughs> Till then, <laughs> that could be over new, there. <laughs> that could be a new sign. You say from now, from now, from us, from there. Till then, over here. Good After night. that, <laughs> before this, good evening. <laughs> it's clearly been a long day, so I'm going to say goodbye. From now, goodbye. Until next time, fare thee well. Bye.